0: If you have a copy of God's Word, find Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. Working our way through the book of Genesis together. In hearing what God has to say, Jesus once responded to the Pharisees by asking them a question. Have you not read what was said to you by God, telling us that what we read on this page is the very Word of God. If you've ever desired to hear an audible word from God, I would tell you to read your Bible aloud, get you an audio Bible, whatever it is, to hear God's very Word to us. We're going to look at Genesis 19, and we'll read from verse 1 to 29 together. This is the Word of God. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, "'Where are the men who came to you last night? Bring them out to us, that we may know them.'" Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not yet known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, but he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with him with you than with them then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break down the door but the men reached out their hands and brought lot into the house with them and shut the door and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house both small and great so that they wore themselves out groping at the door then the men said to said to lot Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or any you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, "'Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away.' And Lot said to them, "'Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there.' Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he and and he overthrew the cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he'd stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the furnace went up, the smoke of the land went up like a smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is the word of God. Today, people are not going to like me. (laughs) And that's okay. I'm not necessarily worried about being liked or culturally popular. I'm here to say what God has said. And friends, I believe God has spoken plainly. Today, we look at Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, a passage that clearly addresses uh, homosexuality in all of its forms and describes them as sinful and against God's design. Now, I cannot assume everybody in this room is on the same page with me, so let me say a few things as I introduce talking about this. First, first, I want you to know this topic really isn't a hobby horse for me or for our church. Anybody who's here regularly, who's been here the last seven to eight months that I've been here, knows that I tend to stick pretty tight to the text in front of me. I'm not one who dovetails into hot, current, cultural issues of the day. I'm not somebody who is generally very political from the pulpit. And I don't believe this is ultimately political. This is something that God has clearly spoken about, as we'll see today. It's also the joy of how we do Bible teaching here, going verse by verse. If you're new, we generally go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible. And so last week we were in Genesis 18, a section of that. Now we're in Genesis 19, and next week we'll look in, in, chap- in verses 30 to 38 of Genesis 19, we don't want to be a church that picks and chooses what parts of the Bible we believe. So we look at all of it, even the parts that make the preacher have to work a little harder in his prep on Sunday, right, or his prep for Sunday. Some that can be harder to believe, but we want to obey all that God has said to us, and that's our desire today as well. And God has spoken through his word on the issue of sexuality and marriage. Second. Despite what our culture may say, we can believe something is sinful and yet still love the people in the lifestyle. We can still love people that, that, that sin in various ways. Let me say this, I have a family member very close to me who's currently living in a homosexual lifestyle. I've had coworkers, friends, classmates who've been on all sides of this issue, and it doesn't lead me to hate them, but to pray for them, to love them, to serve them, to have lunch with them, to have them over, and to preach the gospel to them. Let me say this, whatever your background here today, we love you, and we want you to experience the abundant life that's found in Jesus. I hope our posture is come as you are, but don't stay there. In fact, that's God's invitation to all of us, isn't it? He says, come as you are, but come and be transformed and conformed into the image of Jesus. And third, I want whoever is listening to stick with me, even if you might be a little skeptical about this whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing, because there's an incredible word of hope here. It may be difficult to hear at first, but there is a powerful word of hope to all of us that comes out of Genesis chapter 19. And so with that, with that introduction laid, I want us to dive into the text, and I want us to walk through the passage in three scenes and draw five applications to apply to our life. You'll see in your notes, on the back of your bulletin, an acronym that says REAP, R-E-A-P. And I hope that it's a helpful acronym, not just for to go into this sermon, but I hope you would use this in your personal Bible reading. The REAP stands for read the text. You examine the text. Look at what it says. Look at words and word usage and how it all fits together. You then apply the text and you pray the text. It's simple, but I think it's incredibly helpful. We've already read the whole text together. So I want us to examine it, to study it, to see what it says before moving to applying it and then praying it together. So let's, let's examine the text. Genesis 19 picks up on a busy 24-hour period in the life of Abraham. If you remember, we've been in chapter 18 for two weeks, and in chapter 18, Abraham had these angelic visitors... And he showed hospitality toward these men. The angels, while they were there at dinner, at lunch with Abraham, made a promise that, Abraham, you're going to have a son come through you. Though you're 100 and your wife's 90 and y'all are barren and this looks impossible, I'm going to give you a son. But in the midst of that, they also spoke a word of judgment towards Sodom. Back in chapter 18, look at verse 20 and 21. Genesis 18, 20 and 21. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. God heard of their wickedness and he sent angels to investigate. And last week we saw that God going down to see what's going to happen is meant to cue us into something. That this is the same language that was used back in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, that judgment was coming. If God's got to show up, it, that might not always be a good thing for God to come down and have to show up to their city. And so we saw that Abraham responded to this news with prayer he prayed god you you 're the judge of all the earth. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He prays for Sodom, and I think he also was praying for nep- for his nephew Lot, who we learned back in chapter thirteen had settled in Sodom with his family and what began in chapter eighteen at noontime with the focus on these on Abraham, now moved to an evening visit from these angels with Lot. And the first scene we see is Lot's holy hospitality. We see Lot's holy hospitality. Lot becomes the focus now of chapter 19. And we see some familiar guests and a familiar response to these guests. Look at verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, only city officials sat in the gate. In these days, this meant that Lot had risen to some position of respect and prominence. And he would have had the responsibility to protect strangers that came into the city. And then look what continues, verse 1. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servants' house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Lot's response mirrors exactly what Abraham did when these visitors came to him. Lot knew that the town square was going to be a dangerous place, and he extends hospitality that would have been common in those days, and he pressed them strongly. He said, please get in my house. You don't know what goes on in the town square. I do. And then he makes them this huge feast, and they eat. Things seem pretty wholesome, doesn't it? And then verse... happens. The scene moves from Lot's holy hospitality to Sodom's wicked desire. To Sodom's wicked desire. Look at verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Notice first the emphasis of verse 4. Look at that. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, young and old, to the last man, surrounded the house. I think, I think Moses and the Holy Spirit want us to know that the men were involved. <laughs> he says it in the most clearest possible way, that all the men of the city were part of this, and they desired to know the guests. Now, the Hebrew word here can mean simple head knowledge, to meet somebody, to know them, but it also can denote a sort of intimate knowing. Genesis 4.1 would say this, that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. There's a way you can know a friend or a stranger, and then there's a way you know your wife. There's a sort of intimate knowledge, a sort of intimate sexual knowledge that is in view here. And Lot, I think, understood exactly what they meant. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. So Lot offers his daughters, who have not known a man, to to this group of men. And Lot does this to protect the guests in his house. Protection of of sojourners and strangers in one's home was, was a supreme moral importance in this day. And yet, sadly, while I think Lot had a good motive protect the people in my house. He definitely had a very bad application. He seemed to think that two wrongs would make a right, or that a lesser wrong would somehow be the right thing to do. And we often think this way too, by the way. Before we're too hard on Lot, we often go, well, I don't want that to happen. Let me just do this slightly less, let me do this other less wrong, and maybe that'll make it all right. Lot sinned, Clearly, by offering his daughters to the mob, but the mob was also sinning in their desires for these men. That's clear. And now, you can go to all sorts of bookstores and see these so-called Bible scholars. They'll usually call themselves progressive, whatever that's supposed to mean. And they, and they desire to try to fit the Bible with what our culture is currently saying about homosexual relationships. And they'll argue that the issue in Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't that these men were attracted to these other men, but that their inhospitality was the issue. Or that the fact that they were basically ganging up on, this, on these guests, that that was the issue. And let me say, I think these folks just simply miss the point. Let me show you in the text. They'll argue that the word no, they'll say, hey, well, the word no doesn't necessarily mean that sort of intimate sexual context there, but rather that the crowd simply desired to meet the strangers. Simply put, Lot desired what they wanted as wicked. And that doesn't really make much sense that meeting these strangers that Lot would say, hey man, don't do wickedly by coming to meet these people that I have in my house. Also, the word know here is clearly sexual in nature based on how Lot responds. Why would he give these men to know his daughter in in that sort of way? Why would he do that if that wasn't what was in view? Second, I don't believe that ganging up is the ultimate issue because Lot declared their desires to be wicked before verse 9 ever happens. Look what happens in verse 9. But they said stand back, and they said, This fellow has come to sojourn, and he has become the judge. In other words, they say, Judge not. Don't judge me. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Lot condemned them as wicked before they ever attempted to take anyone by force. And while what they attempted to do was certainly sin, Even the desires that began the whole thing were the issue. Look what happens next, verse 10. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. These men were so filled with lust and desires that they are blinded and left groping, trying to grab at the door. The scene is incredible when you really begin to think about it. They wanted what they wanted, and they would have done anything to get it. And Lot is now protected by the ones he sought to protect. And then a warning comes. The scene moves to Lot's rescue and Sodom's destruction. It started with Lot's holy hospitality. It moved to introduce Sodom's wicked desires. And now we see Lot's rescue and Sodom's destruction. Look at verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, "'Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in this city? Bring them out of the place.'" for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city, but he seemed his sons-in-law to be jesting. Catch that. See the influence of Sodom. These men who were about to marry Lot's daughters thought the whole thing was a big joke. Good men were obviously hard to find in Sodom. Doesn't sound much doesn't sound much different than our day in many ways, am I right? People that take the judgment of God seriously. This wasn't a joke. Look what happens as the tension builds. Verse 15. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Don't linger, friends, when God tells you to run. And then, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one and my life will be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. And Zoar, you may have a little note down at the bottom of your Bible, means little, Do you see the Lord's mercy? Not only did the angel rescue Lot out of Sodom, even after he lingered, but they spared a nearby city for him as well. It spared a nearby city for him to go to. And then we reach the climax, the pinnacle of the drama, verse 23. Look at this. Then the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. So it's daytime. If you've ever seen those photos of Sodom and Gomorrah being at night, it seems as if the sun was up. And the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of the cities which grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valleys, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had So in broad daylight, God rains down fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot escapes and his daughters, but his wife gets part of the way and turns around and turns into a pillar of salt. And then the focus shifts back to Abraham, who's overlooking the whole scene. And we see that God remembered Abraham's prayer and rescues Lot and his family out of destruction. That's the text. We've examined it. We've walked through it. Now, what do we do with this? If you were coming and reading this in your morning reading, you're like, what in the world am I going to do with this? What lessons do we draw? Five applications, you'll see in your notes, to consider together this morning. Now, I think the first one is certainly the longest, but it is the thrust of the text. Sodom and Gomorrah are a call to flee sexual immorality. It's a call to flee Sexual immorality. The sin of Sodom was sexual. And let me say, I talk about this because there is so much in our culture every day. Pornography is but a click away from anybody in this room. And before we begin to think that would never happen to me, friends, you just you just don't know how close it actually is to you and desires to have you. Sure, there were lots of issues in Sodom, but ultimately they had hearts that lusted and longed for debauchery. In fact, the Old Testament prophets made Sodom one of the paradigms for sin. Look first, you'll see in your notes, Sodom in the prophets. Sodom in the prophets. Sodom is mentioned all sorts of places. This isn't just an isolated one chapter in the Bible. This becomes sort of a paradigm to think about. This is a picture that is used throughout the Bible. Look at this, Sodom in the prophets. Isaiah compares the wicked rulers of his day to the rulers of Sodom. That's Isaiah 1.10. You can look that up when you get home. And Jeremiah said about the false prophets of his day. Look what he said. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adulteries and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of the evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Notice there's a lot of issues there, but he has adultery mentioned there so that there's obviously some sexual sin involved. Look what Ezekiel has to say about Israel in his day. He said, Behold, this is the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Now stop. Some are going to, you're going to go to Bible commentaries and even some modern books that will quote that verse to you and go, look, see, Sodom's sin wasn't anything to do with sex at all. They were prideful and selfish and didn't care for the poor. Their sin was inhospitality. And yet those friends stop, they stop reading at verse 49, but Ezekiel keeps going. Look what he says, verse 50. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. An abomination, there's a clear reference back to Leviticus 18 and 20. And let's look now at Sodom in the law. So we saw Sodom in the prophets and Sodom in the law. And look at Leviticus 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. It's one of the few things that the Old Testament uses that word for. And now what I'm about to read is also incredibly and extremely unpopular, even shocking. But look at Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. This, is, this was in Israel, one of the capital offenses. Now, why is that? I would argue it's because God's promise to the people for a savior was that he would be born through a woman and that this was something that by nature hindered that from ever happening. They couldn't have a baby boy who would come to save his people from their sins if they never had children. It threatened something that was foundational to God's plan for creation and redemption, marriage, and the family. And certainly this is what Ezekiel had in mind when he spoke about the abomination in connection to Sodom. Now, someone will stop and go, well, Matt, that's the Old Testament. As if somehow that just tosses, as if we toss out two-thirds of the book, Right? Yet the New Testament picks up on the same warning about Sodom. Let's look next at Sodom in the New Testament. Sodom in the New Testament. Look at this. Look at what Peter says. This is 2 Peter 2. And I'm only going to read two verses, but it's from 6 to 10. We'll look at the rest of 6 to 10 later. But... Here's what Peter says. He's comparing Sodom to the flood. And he says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what happens to the ungodly. Then down in verse 10, especially those who indulge in lustful, defiling passions and despise authority. You see it? The issue there was that they rejected, God's passion. they rejected God's authority and lived for their own passions and pleasures. They did what they wanted when they wanted, and that was an issue. Jude's even more clear. Look what Jude says. Jude's got one chapter. So verse 7, he says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example By undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. See, the lesson that Old Testament, New Testament wants you to bring home about Sodom is the danger of sexual sin. And it's at this point we often hear this Jesus never said a word about homosexuality, He never said a word about it, Matt. You'll hear this everywhere. People will often try to pit Jesus against Moses or Jesus against Paul and Peter and Jude. But here's my response. I usually say, what if Jesus did? And almost always, I'll begin with the issue of authority because I have often said, what if Jesus did? And they'll go, well, then I don't care what Jesus says now go, well, then why did you care about what he said if he agreed with you? If you don't care about what he says when he disagrees with you, that's sort of like the the times people often critique the church for picking parts of the Bible they like and those they don't. That's exactly what they're doing. They're picking the parts of Jesus where he says, love your neighbor, but not the other parts of it that clearly they don't agree with. We don't want to be people who pick and choose what the Bible says and what we like and don't like. We don't want to be the hypocrites who do that and who others condemn us for being that. So we want to look at what Jesus says. But if the person says, hey, I actually do care about what Jesus says. Jesus's opinion on this would change my mind. Here's what I would tell them: There's three things. Jesus speaks about this in three different places, I think, very clearly. First, I'll show them where Jesus defined marriage. Jesus defined marriage. Marriage And look what he does. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is actually answering a question about divorce. So this is very relevant, right? This is about splitting off a marriage. And so Jesus begins by defining what marriage is. And he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus upholds Genesis 1 and 2, man and woman, as definitional to marriage. Jesus clearly defined marriage and with it gender and sexuality in a way that is counter-cultural and grounded in God's word, but might not be popular on TikTok or Instagram today. Jesus didn't care and doesn't care what is popular in any day. He cares about being faithful to what God has said. Second, so Jesus defined marriage, but also show them where Jesus defined immorality. Jesus defined immorality. Consider Matthew chapter 15. There Jesus is responding to Pharisees and they're having sort of a discussion around hand washing. Now, This wasn't the sort of hygiene hand-washing, because I think you should definitely do that. But the Pharisees were saying, hey, that if I clean my hands a certain way and clean my food a certain way, then it will cleanse my heart when I eat it. And Jesus here exposes them and says their heart was the issue. And here's the unpopular Jesus. You're not going to see this on, like, the front cover of some sort of, like, um, some sort of like, cute little Bible journal. This isn't going to be on there. Here's what Jesus says. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So notice there he uses the word sexual immorality, and the Greek word there is the word porneia, spelled exactly how you think it's spelled. And porneia actually comes right out of the Old Testament, where the laws of Leviticus 18 and others that we found just a second ago, it was called the porneia code, or the, the, the laws for how one could properly express their sexuality. And here, Jesus is clearly upholding what the Old Testament ethic says. See, Jesus cared what the left side of the book says, which might I remind you, is two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament. So folks just throwing that out, well, I only really like a third of what God says. And even then, they're going to start picking and choosing, right? He upheld what the left side of the book had to say about marriage and sexuality. And finally, I'll show them where Jesus defined his identity. Jesus defined his identity. This is so core. John 1, 1, You've probably memorized these verses before, but in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, being Jesus, was in the beginning with God. Friends, Jesus, from from what we, when we put the Bible together and what the Bible says about him, he is the second person of the Trinity in perfect union with the Father and the Son. So when we see God acting in the Bible, it's the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit acting together. In other words, Jesus was at Sodom. Let me paraphrase one of my favorite Bible teachers. There's a guy named Vody Bacham, He was a fantastic brother. He currently serves in Zambia, Africa. And, and here's a paraphrase of what he said. He spoke about the importance of understanding who Jesus is. And he said this, When rocks were falling on Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus was neither absent nor in disagreement. You can't divorce Jesus from the God on the left side of the book because he is the God on the left side of the book. It's not like Jesus just came to be in Matthew chapter 1. No, he has always been. Sure, he came to be in human form and take on flesh and live with us, but Jesus has always been. He was there. And so Jesus spoke clearly in defining marriage and immorality and even his own identity that Jesus is on the side of the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament authors when it comes to sexual sin, even the sin of homosexuality. And hear me, sexual sin like Sodom's don't happen overnight. It's cultivated one longing look here one passing thought there one what will one glance hurt at a time and be warned all of this is a big deal I hear it all the time people go who I sleep with doesn't really impact anybody else tell that to Sodom and tell that to you As so many people are trying to find their happiness and their freedom and just having sex with whoever they want, and then I go, how's that working for you? You seem miserable, friend. doesn't seem like it's getting you what you want. And and then people will play the the judge not card. And and if I can remind you, that's actually what Sodom said to Lot. Look back at verse 9 of Genesis 19. They said, stand back. This fellow who's come to sojourn has become... The judge, he said, Lot, stop judging me." And yet, we know that God, we've seen in Genesis, clearly has the right to judge what is right and what is wrong. I don't. This isn't about me and what I think. This is about what God has said. Sodom is a call to flee sexual sin. And let me say this: I've heard time and time again from folks. The church at large has done a very bad job teaching others how to fight their sin. I've heard all the time people go, I just prayed and prayed and prayed, and it never, and I was never able to stop sinning. And friends, prayer is great, but sin isn't fought with a couple passive moments of prayer. Jesus calls you to more. Here's what Jesus says, and this, again, is unpopular Jesus. Here's what he says. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. In other words, hear me. If you're in the grips of pornography or whatever it is, he says, don't simply pray with your phone next to you. Ever see folks do that and like, I really, really want it, but I'm just going to sit here with it right next to me and just pray and hope that the phone goes away. No. Cut off Access, put blockers on your phone, get accountability, get in a small group and into Christian community where you can feel open to share these things. And church, we need to be ready to receive people who come forward in need of help. Maybe our first response doesn't need to be to turn them to to Genesis 19 and tell them how wrong they are. They're probably already feeling that. Maybe we should start with John 3.16 before we ever jump them to Genesis 19. Maybe hellfire might not get the response we're after. We need to start with reminding others of the promises of God, of going on the offensive, of tearing down strongholds with the word of God. Sure, pray. Prayer is great, but go to war. Get lots of weapons in your arsenal. Sodom is a warning of the dangers of sexual sin. And let me say one more thing before we move to our next application. If you're somebody who struggles, with same-sex attraction, and there is somebody here I can guarantee statistically that does or has, no matter how others may have responded, I want you to know that we love you. I love you. And we want to see you flee from slavery to sin and find freedom and life and joy in Jesus. But you must come out of the shadows and into the light. And we want to walk beside you We'd invite you to come and talk to one of us. And even if somebody comes to you and you don't know how to respond, maybe saying nothing in that moment might be the right thing. Or to just offer to pray and bring them to somebody who may be able to talk to them uh, and help them along the way. Sodom is a warning to flee sexual morality. Second, Sodom is a warning to our families. Sodom is a warning to our families. Consider this. Lot, who we find out is a believer, picks up his family and moves them to Sodom. Seems innocent enough at the time. Yet, look, his daughters were about to marry some jerks who treated God's judgment as a joke. And as we'll see next week, he could take his daughters out of Sodom, but he wasn't going to be able to take Sodom out of his daughters. They were going to just do absolutely awful and filthy things next week. I'll tell you, next week's sermon is rated r for content. there is some very gross stuff that these daughters are going to do. And so Christian families, where you live, matters. Who you and your family spend lots of time around matters. Your friends matter. How your children are educated in the Lord matters. Here's what Psalm 1 says. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So be careful who you take counsel with, who you stand with, who you sit beside. Not in a sort of paranoid sense. He's meaning in the long-term direction of your life. Be careful who's influencing you. And then Paul even says this, 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-three. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Christian mothers and fathers, your kids need more than an hour or two a week of church in the world we live in. They need a whole lot more than that. Consider this. A recent Gallup survey was published in the Washington Post on February 24th, 2021. So this is a week or two ago. And this survey found that nearly 15% One in six of Gen Z adults, so that's those 18 to 23, identify as something other than heterosexual. One in six, 15%. The majority of those, 70-something percent of those, are folks who identify as some form of bisexual. Friends, we live in a country and in a place that Sodom would have been jealous of. And hear me. Are we training the next generation in the Word of God? Are we teaching them how to actually fight their sin and how to fight these things and think about it and tear down strongholds and do these things? But also hear me, hear me young people in particular. I am not much older than some of you, so I hope I can say this in a way that will connect with you. Your parents probably have a good reason to keep you from certain people, places, and things. So it might be good to heed some of that advice that maybe in their life they know just a tad bit more than you might in your short life. I Hope you will receive that, friends. Your parents keeping you from Sodom might seem like a drag until the fire begins to fall. Take heed of godly advice. Take heed of your company. Take heed of yourself because the Bible's clear that God always makes a way of escape. But sometimes the escape comes long before the issue ever comes up. If Lot had never moved to Sodom, he would have never been in this situation. So Sodom speaks a word to our families. Third, Sodom is a warning of Judgment Day. It's a warning that all of us are going to stand before the Lord and give an account for our life. And it's incredible how Sodom is used throughout the Bible as a picture of God's judgment. Consider a few things. First, Sodom uses language directly from earlier in Genesis, particularly Genesis 6 to 9 with the flood. Let I me mean, have you think of a things. So you can jot these down and look and read over the story and look for these words. Lot was shut in the ark, or it was shut in just as Noah was shut in the ark. They're both shut in. They, if you if you Lot and them flee to the hills or to the mountains. And, and Noah's ark lands on a mountain. Noah and Lot are both described as righteous men who find favor in the eyes of the Lord. And even think about this. It describes the fire as raining. That should cue us into something. He, he's, he's using this earlier language to show this is a judgment. But Not only does Sodom pick up on the language of the flood, but Sodom becomes a picture in the teachings of Jesus as well. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 17. When he speaks about his second coming and the coming of the kingdom, what he says, Just like, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the sun of man is revealed. We're warned, all of us have our day before the judge of the universe, whether through death or through second coming. And Sodom is a picture, a warning that just as he came in judgment, then he is coming at the end of human history. And ask yourself, if you were to stand before the holy God today and give an account of your life, what would be your hope? The warning of judgment day. Fourth Sodom is a warning to the backslider. Sodom is a warning to the backslider. Here's what Jesus would go on to say. Luke 17 again. Look at this. On that day, let the one who's on the house with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life We'll find it. Jesus says, remember Lot's wife? She looked back. Even after the Lord spoke through an angel and the fire was coming down, she still looked back. And this wasn't the sort of look back of like an impulse, like, oh, there was a loud noise that scared her. This was a looking back in longing. She, had, she could get out of Sodom, but friends, Sodom was still very much in her heart and in her mind. She wanted to preserve her life there and ended up losing it rather than trusting in the Lord and ultimately finding a true and better life wherever he led. And friends, this is so often our story. This is so often your story. We all seek to cling to something, but the Lord calls us to lay it down so that we can pick up something better, something truer, something eternal, to lay down our life, to pick up our cross, and to follow Jesus. Lot is, or Lot's wife is a lesson in what Jesus would later say. Luke 9.62, another one of Jesus' hard sayings. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God i just going to let that settle, right? Jesus just drops the mic, done, walks off. Lot's wife looked back. Friends, are you being tempted to look back to the life you left? Are you being tempted to go back into your old self, the Sodom God rescued you from? Or are you feeling the pressure from the culture to cave on your convictions? to give in on any number of issues that might be going on, to seek the approval of man above the approval of God. This text is a warning to you. And finally, Sodom is a promise of mercy. It's a promise of mercy. I told you good news was coming, and here it is. Sodom is a lesson for us. We saw in Genesis 19 that even though Lot lingered, God was merciful to him. And look what 2 Peter says about this. 2 Peter 2.6 If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. If he rescued righteous Lot, we'll look next week at what it means for Lot to be righteous, because he doesn't appear very righteous, does he? It says that he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was, torment, he, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Here he says, the Lord knows how to rescue you. He spoke a word of judgment to Sodom, but he spoke a, mercy, a word of mercy to Lot. In the same way, God has spoken a word of judgment, but also a word of mercy. Yes, Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead, but he's also made a way to escape the judgment and find forgiveness and life and peace. That God sent Jesus Christ into the world to live among sinful men, to live a perfect life that none of us could, to die on the cross for our sins and to rise again from the dead, forever defeating sin, death, and hell to provide a way out. And this way out is through faith. And you can find through faith in Jesus, rescue from the penalty and power of sin through Jesus Christ. And it's not only once that we see how terrible sin is. It's not only once that we see how terrible our sin is. Sodom certainly does that. But it also should lead us to truly marvel at God's mercy. The bad news of of sin and judgment should only amplify the good news that Jesus has come. So I hope that in a sea of bad news today, it amplifies the invitation of mercy, the island of mercy in the middle of the sea to look to Christ. Even as Lot lingered in Sodom, God in mercy ripped him out today, and God in mercy can rip you out of wherever you are. But Jesus is God taking a grasp of you. Look to Christ. Flee To mercy, and hear me, the mercy of God isn't simply a get out of hell, free card. So many times we check it that way, don't we? You actually got to get up and walk out of Sodom. (laughs) You actually got to get up. There were probably many very seemingly religious people in Sodom. Sodom might have even had churches. But friends, they actually had to leave Sodom behind. To truly follow Christ, we must leave behind the sin that we once lived in to flee from whatever sort of Sodom we live in. And the Bible says that though we're not going to do it perfectly, as we leave Sodom behind, the Sodom inside of us begins to leave. None of us are perfect in this, but God is working on all of us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 11, as controversial as these verses are, offer incredible hope to you. Look at this. First Corinthians six, nine to eleven. And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And here it is, here's the good news. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see that he throws all kinds of sin underneath the bus there. And he says, no matter who you are, God can change you. No matter your background, your sin, your struggle, God offers a new life, a new identity through his death and resurrection. You're no no longer defined in Christ by what you did, but by what Jesus did. Your present can be your past, buried and dead through faith in Jesus Christ. God is calling you out of sin and into life, out of yourself and into himself, to be washed and made holy and justified and spirit-filled. May we heed the words of God and flee Sodom for the hope of our Savior. But how do we need to respond today? We see these general applications here, but I see... Four things, and each of us may have a different thing we need to do. First, some of us today need to come to Jesus. For the first time, maybe you are finally ready to flee Sodom today. And you can do that right where you are by calling on the name of the Lord and by following up with one of us after service, by talking with one of us because Jesus stands ready to rescue you. He says, come as you are and be prepared not to stay there. Second, some of you may need help today. And that's okay. Some of you may be caught in the battle of sin. And you feel as if you're losing. We're here to help you. And we're glad to help you. When when we're here to help. And when the help. And where does the help to tear down strongholds come from? Well, it comes in community. And the way to do that is by not just coming on Sundays and connecting with people, but joining a small group. We've got a group that meets on Sunday mornings. We've got some groups meeting on Wednesday nights. We've got some groups that are going to be starting. And I know COVID makes some of that kind of weird, but that's okay. Friends, we've, you've got to get into real Christian, spirit-filled community and accountability. You cannot live your life alone. You couldn't fight a war by yourself. Why are you trying to fight your sin by yourself? Help. Get in a group. Third, some of us needed fresh courage today. We have a culture pressing against us. Some of us feel just depressed by news headlines and all sorts of crazy things going on in the world. People are upset about a potato this week. All sorts of wild stuff, right? And we need some fresh courage. And we need to say clearly, we will not compromise what God has said. The culture can push and push and push, but God will never change. We need to be filled with fresh courage that, hear me, we are the ones that win in the end. That it was Lot who stood at the end on the other side of Sodom. And so, friends, we need fresh courage to stand firm in our convictions and to not compromise on God's word in a very compromised world. And finally, I think this should lead us to respond in worship to our incredible King, to our incredible God and Savior, and that I want us to do that now with renewed passion and humility and vision of our incredible God. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father God, we heard a heavy word today, a word that many in our culture don't like, a word that maybe even people in this room right now don't like, and that's okay. Lord, we love you, and we desire to say what you've said, believe what you've said, obey what you've said, and Lord, I pray that this vision of Sodom and Gomorrah that we've seen today wouldn't be received simply as bad news because lord may it prepare hearts for the good news that you have come and you have done everything necessary through jesus your son to restore us to god and to give us freedom from whatever has bound us that you that that those who you set free are free indeed lord i pray you would set folks free today And begin the process of healing and grow through through community, small groups, friendships, whatever it is. But Lord, we're thankful that you have spoken. And Lord, maybe not be people who take that for granted in our day and age. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: the darkness you shine. Out of the ashes we rise. There's no one like you. None like you. Our God. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is here. The darkness you shine out of the ashes we rise. There's no one like you, none like you. Let's sing it together right now. Our God is greater, our God is stronger. For us, then what could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? And if our God is for us, then what could ever?
0: for us and who can stand against us just a couple quick words before we close with a benediction I know we've got new faces back today or faces that are back with us and even some new to me we're glad you're here please say hello and also remember as you're moving around the building for the comfortability of others to please have your mask on if you want to have a long conversation you can go outside in the parking lot it's a beautiful day and talk how, how you see fit just a reminder we have baskets here to leave an offering or gift that you may have. You also can go online and do that through texting or through giving online. But we're thankful to worship together, thankful for our time together. And we close with a benediction from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.